This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. I'd like to invite our, our panelists to join us on stage. Alan Acosta, Pam Carlin, and Philip Taubman. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we'll probably spend about 30 or 40 minutes talking. We'll see. And then if there are questions, I think there's a microphone in the audience that uh, you can ask uh, our esteemed panelists any question you like. And they won't cite national security as a reason not to answer, so we'll be OK. Um, I, I want to start out by um, setting a little historical context uh, because as although this made for a very dramatic presentation, um, by chronicling what was going on at the Post at the time, really the, uh, the drama really started at the New York Times. And um, Phil is, uh, is here and can tell us a little bit about what happened at the New York Times with regard to the Pentagon Papers and Neil Sheehan, who is really the reporter who first broke this story. Well, first I, I have to offer a few disclaimers. Uh, I was not working at the Times when the Pentagon Papers were published. I was uh, just graduating from Stanford University. <laughs> uh, secondly, I think in, uh, in introducing me uh, before the theatrical production, I was uh, identified as the Washington bureau chief, which indeed I was, but am not now. I uh, am now associate editor of the New York Times, and I'm actually living here in your uh, neighborhood uh, having resettled in California for a couple of years to work on national security projects. Uh, but I, I have some sense of the history, and I think the first thing I would say, as was clear from the theatrical production, certainly Kay Graham was a very courageous publisher, uh, but uh, so was Punch Salzberger, her counterpart at the New York Times. Uh, and Punch got to make the hard call first uh, with the advice of Abe Rosenthal. And he, too, uh, had uh, legal advice uh, that was uh, uh, ambivalent at best. Indeed, the law firm that had historically represented the New York Times, Lord Day Lord, uh, bowed out of representing the paper when the Pentagon Papers issue drove up. I think uh, former Attorney General Herbert Brownell was one of the partners in that firm. But I think they basically just profoundly disagreed with the possibility that the Times would publish this set of so-called secrets. So the, exactly the same drama that was so vividly presented here this afternoon played out at the New York Times. And in, I think the stakes were, uh, if anything, higher uh, because we were going first. And, and the future of the newspaper uh, just as was perceived at the Post, was very much viewed as being in jeopardy uh, by the decision to publish the threat that we might uh, be uh, indicted under the Espionage Act, that the newspaper uh, might uh, end up uh, financially uh, unable to continue operating uh, under the kinds of criminal sanctions that were threatened. Pam, I, I just want to get a little bit of grounding in the issues here, because clearly this is a case that still resonates 
35 years later with people. And why is it you, th you think that's so that you know, on a beautiful Sunday afternoon in Northern California, we can fill an auditorium with people who are still interested in this case? Well, I think part of the reason for that is the parallels to contemporary times. I mean, the same way that if you go and see Antigone, you think about contemporary times, or if you go and see Coriolanus, you think about contemporary times. You think about it a little bit here on a couple of different levels. One is we are now involved in another war where there's a serious question about uh, what the government knew at the time versus what it told us to get into the war. Uh, we find ourselves in a position where people are once again talking about the government's ability to keep things secret. Um, if you followed the confirmation hearings for the new Attorney General of the United States this past week, uh, he was asked whether or not he considered waterboarding to be torture, and he said he couldn't answer the question because that would require him to reveal something about national secrets and interrogation techniques. And so the issues are uh, timeless. I mean, there are issues today as well. I think another thing that you get a little bit of a sense of from the production, and something Phil said ties in with this, is the role of the media in society and the fact that you were dealing with the two probably greatest newspapers in the country, both of which are family-owned newspapers. And I think that's a really critical point. And you get a little bit of a sense of this both from the production and from, um, for example, uh, Kay Graham's memoirs, that the Post was in the process of becoming not just a newspaper, not just a family-owned newspaper, but a media conglomerate. And the question of whether the media can continue to play the same kind of role when they have government licenses for their television stations, when they are thinking about themselves primarily as entertainment companies and the like, I think is uh, an issue that concerns a lot of people today as well. Uh, and the relationship, obviously, the symbiotic relationship between the government and, and news media what gets leaked, what doesn't, when is the news media being used by leaks as opposed to actually providing useful information to people. And secrets that I suspect uh, everyone in this auditorium would agree should remain secret, but there are a tremendous number of things that are classified as secret uh, that uh, certainly uh, don't uh, deserve that kind of protection. So the secrecy issue plays out today very uh, um, strongly in the journalism world. Uh, the other thing, the other observation I think when you think back to the Pentagon Papers is that the relationship between the press and the government has gone through a radical transformation over the last 40 or 50 years. If you think back there was a reference in the play uh, to uh, Kay Graham uh, attending the uh, wedding of Jim Reston, Scotty Reston's son. Scotty was one of my predecessors as Washington bureau chief. Scotty was a great journalist, but Scotty was also someone who was apt to be uh, deferential to the government. Scotty was part of the Washington establishment. And I think there were three or four major events that put the relationship into a much more adversarial mode. The famous shootdown of the U-2 in 1960, in which the Eisenhower administration at first acted as if uh, what flight, where, who, we wouldn't do anything like that. Uh, then Vietnam, uh, the Pentagon Papers, uh, and uh, ultimately Watergate really changed that relationship. Uh, I think it. there was a period leading up to the invasion of Iraq where the press did not do its job adequately, my paper included, but I think we have recovered our uh, footing since then. Over that period of time, 
Pam, would you say, how, how did the courts change and how did uh, the law change with regard to some of these issues? Well, you saw a little bit of the discussion. You didn't see as much of the law up on the stage, and that's probably a good thing. Um, I could see that from people's reaction to the uh, lawyer character. Um, the Supreme Court decided the case six to three in favor of allowing publication, but it didn't decide the case. The court was very divided um, in the same way, I think, because they had so little time to decide things. You have a series of opinions from the Supreme Court, and one of the things that's striking is although six of the justices said that the Times and the Post could go ahead with publishing the paper, five of the justices left open the possibility that the papers could be prosecuted after the fact. That is, uh, they read the First Amendment, which says Congress shall make no law re uh, regarding uh, freedom of the press, um, simply as a law that said no prior restraint. That is, you couldn't stop the press from publishing something before they published it, but that isn't the same thing as saying that there are no consequences uh, after the fact. Uh, haven't seen a huge number of national security press cases, uh, either in the Supreme Court or the lower courts, um, largely because it's a self-defeating enterprise to go after the press. It's uh, difficult to do, and uh, the risk is that you look exactly as the lawyers for the government looked here. Do, do you think the current court would have, how, how would you guess they might have ruled in this case? Well, you know, one of the odd things is the current court is thought of as much, and rightly so, as much more conservative than its predecessors. It has not been more conservative on the First Amendment. That's one of the areas where the court has not cut back very dramatically, and in some areas, in fact, has increased uh, First Amendment uh, rights to publish and the like. So. It's, it's hard to know. I mean, one of the things that, of course, this court has found out over the last couple of cycles, not so much with press cases, but with terrorism cases, is the government comes in and says things like, in the uh, Hamdi case, uh, we cannot prosecute this man in open court because it's too dangerous to the national security. And then when the Supreme Court says, well, you have to give him some kind of hearing, they say, okay, we'll let him go as long as he promises never to come back to the United States and he gives up his citizenship. Or the Padilla case, uh, the government says, uh, we have to hold this person on a material witness warrant forever. We can't prosecute him because it would reveal secrets. And then they're sort of signaled that, no, they're going to have to try him. And they try him on something completely different in an open court, and they convict him. So I don't know that the current Supreme Court isn't likely to be quite skeptical of the government's assertions that something is national security, because it's been up there a couple of times claiming things are national security. Uh, and then backing off in a way that suggests that it was exactly what uh, the K. Graham character says at the end, which is it's as much a concern with embarrassment uh, and as much a mania for security at all costs as anything else. And if I could just put in a plug for another event. Um, while you're, it's a free event. Uh, so for those of you who've heard the line, there's no such thing as a free lunch, there actually is. Um, tomorrow at the law school, Jack Goldsmith, who is head of the Office of Legal Counsel, uh, during 2003 and 2004 is going to be talking on his book, The Torture Presidency, and there's a free lunch. And he actually talks about this mania for security and for going it alone in the executive branch as something that ultimately undercuts national security. Um, I'll, I'll say one last thing about that, which is um, because the New York Times isn't featured as much uh, in the production, you didn't get to see what happened in the trial where the New York Times went in front of a judge in New York, but uh, Judge Gerfine, who was the judge in that case, wrote in his opinion 
that uh, talking about national security is true, but national security is more than just protecting the ramparts of the country. It's also uh, ensuring that people have confidence in the government and that our allies have confidence in us. And sometimes secrecy undercuts that more than a certain level of candor ever would. Well, Phil, I think we can, you know, say with a little bit more certainty what, how the current administration would be acting in, under these circumstances as opposed to the court. It's kind of a guess, but y y can you talk a little bit about how the Bush administration has been dealing with the issue of national security versus uh, press rights? The, we faced the possibility, it didn't happen, uh, when we published the story about the National Security Agency warrantless eavesdropping uh, at the end of 2005. One of the things that we were concerned about uh, as the lawyers for the post were during the Pentagon Papers case and for the Times was the possibility that there would be a prosecution of the newspaper and its leaders under the Espionage Act. That did not happen, uh, probably because those kinds of cases would be very hard to sustain, fortunately. I don't think, I refer to you on this, that the Espionage Act has been uh, used in that way against the press, and I hope it never is. But what we've found uh, is something that's almost as insidious, which is the use of the courts uh, to enforce subpoenas uh, for journalists to reveal the identity of their sources. And the consequence of that, the case may not have been uh, a particularly good case uh, in many respects, but the Valerie Plame case and the Judy Miller incarceration um, are a clear example of the threat that journalists now face. Uh, several of my former colleagues in the Washington Bureau today may yet be subpoenaed on the NSA eavesdropping case. And on those matters, I'm sorry to report that the courts uh, do tend uh, to support the government uh, requests for information. Uh, of course, one of the things we, we face now is the fact that um, although the Vietnam War and the war in Iraq are both undeclared wars, um, we're now in this war without end, the war on terrorism, which seems to be invoked in the same way that actual wars used to be invoked for, in, in terms of national security. Since 9-11 and this ongoing war, so-called war, how, how is that going to change the... Um, it, it seems like it opens up the door for endless amounts of secrecy on the part of government. Well, the, the Bush administration, I think there's this, a little bit of a misperception. All presidencies uh, are uh, obsessed with secrecy. I think the difference between the Bush administration and some of its predecessors uh, is that they, at least in the first term, were more disciplined about maintaining secrecy uh, than some other presidencies. But the war, the, I use that term advisedly or carefully, the war on terror, the, the term the Bush administration applies uh, to our effort to combat terrorism, uh, creates an environment uh, in which we have seen the president, uh, partly at the urgings of Dick Cheney, uh, to assert presidential powers in a, in a very aggressive way. Uh, and, and that has led to a climate in Washington in which it's very difficult to go about the business of journalism. Well, there was some discussion of this also in the Pentagon Papers decision um, at the Supreme Court. Uh, which is this question of the relationship among the three branches of government as well as with the, the press. And so 
Um, one of the things that's distinctive, I think, about the current administration is also its reluctance to go to Congress, where they could get approval for a lot of these things, uh, to get approval. They mistrust Congress uh, more than even the Nixon administration distrusted uh, Senator Fulbright. Um, and so that, I think, is something that is distinctive in some ways about this administration, that it uh, doesn't even trust its own members of Congress, Republican members of Congress, let alone Democratic members of Congress or, or the courts. Yeah, I think it's interesting to wonder in retrospect, um, you know, obviously 9-11 was a traumatic event for the country. So d did the president at that point, uh, he chose uh, to take a whole series of actions under his powers of the presidency with minimal consultation of Congress, uh, no effort to go to Congress to get any kind of legislative action except on a few things like the Patriot Act, but a lot of the secret programs that we've learned about, a lot of the interrogation, detention, rendition practices, warrantless eavesdropping, none of those were done uh, with the active and full consent of Congress. How might this administration have played out differently had there been some consultative effort with Congress. They might not have gotten all the things that they wanted to do, but what they might have gotten, which would have been very helpful to them and I think to the country as a whole, would have been some rough consensus about what would be appropriate and what wouldn't be appropriate. And I think a lot of the flack that they have taken in the last three or four years as these programs have become public is due to the fact that there was so little consultation with the Congress and, in effect, with the American people. Do, do you think it makes any difference that there, whether there's a war or not, are, are these issues? I, I think it's an interesting historical note, what you mentioned before, before the play started, that this, uh, this, the, way they, the case they cite but it really wasn't about this issue at all. Maybe you could talk yeah, a the 19, about that. Yeah, you, you saw the lawyer character was looking for this 1931 case. It's a case called Near Against Minnesota, and it's the case in which the Supreme Court says, we don't believe in prior restraint, but if there were troop ships or um, you know battle plans, we might feel differently. And that wasn't actually a case about troop ships or battle plans. It was a case about a, a, a right-wing nutball uh, kind of small publication in Minnesota that had a lot of attacks on the local newspapers and on what it claimed was a worldwide Jewish conspiracy and the like. So it was an anti-Semitic anti rag. Um, there hasn't been a case where uh, there was an allegation that uh, a newspaper was planning to publish the leaving of troop ships or the like. Um, as to this administration, honestly, uh, they had a view of executive power that they were looking to uh, implement, I think, before 9-11 came along. 9-11 changed the country's feeling about this, but if you look back at the writings of many of the people who entered the administration, they've long had a view that the president should be allowed to act unilaterally with respect to international issues and military issues, and they've long thought that Congress should butt out uh, and the press should butt out and the courts shouldn't be involved. So I don't think that it was just 9-11 that turned this administration in the direction uh, it went, just as I don't think it was the Pentagon Papers that turned Richard Nixon into the kind of paranoid that he was. Um, the interaction of history and personality is, is obviously a big topic, but you know, if you compare, for example, uh, this presidency with the last presidency that involved an attack on American soil, 
Franklin Roosevelt often acted unilaterally, but he did a lot of consultation behind the scenes, both with Congress and with the newspapers, um, to you know, so that he would have people kind of on board in a in much more of a consensus way uh, than the current administration, which is not really interested in consensus. It's been it's become popular to say in some quarters that it's not the administration or the courts that are that are at fault um, with regard to this war, but it's actually the media, that they didn't do their job, and maybe both of you could talk a little bit about that. Well, the, the time period, I think, where the, the press did, uh, fell short of was during the uh, period preceding the invasion uh, in Iraq and on weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. The Times was among the papers that uh, provided uh, credulous coverage of the WMD issue. Uh, we went back subsequently uh, and examined what we had done. We found it to have been uh, at fault and uh, addressed that in a couple of uh, notes or letters to the readers that uh, Bill Keller uh, wrote, the executive editor of the paper. I, it was not the finest hour for the New York Times. Uh, but um, I think we have, as I said, uh, reckoned with that. Uh, and got ourselves back into a position uh, where we have re, re, sort of reinitiated our more skeptical uh, and adversarial approach to covering the government. I certainly think it's unfair to suggest that the press took the country to war, uh, that the, uh, the media was responsible, uh, I, I, and as as quick as I am to accept responsibility for things that were done poorly at the New York Times, I think it's also fair to ask uh, the American people, uh, you know, whether they applied enough skepticism uh, to uh, the Bush administration's uh, preparations to take the nation to war. It, it was not just the press that was at fault, the Congress was uh, complacent. Uh, and um, I think it was a, generally a national reaction to 9-11 where uh, we were very fearful about our future uh, and put a great deal of authority in the hands of the executive branch during that period. Well, the other thing, that, and this points to a change since 1971, is whether or not the New York Times did a great job in the lead up to the war or the like, there was more than enough information out there for anyone who wanted the information. That is, it's not that people were misled because the information wasn't available. People were misled and think in part because no one thought the government, despite what we learned in, in the Pentagon Papers case, no one thought the government would just outright lie, that they would just make things up. Um, and one of the lessons, both of the Pentagon Papers era and this era, is the government often makes things up, uh, sometimes about national security issues, sometimes about other issues. Um, and part of what you hope the press will do is uh, serve as a, as a watchdog. And what worries me is, I think, changes in newspapers, even today, very few newspapers have the ability that the Times does or the Post does or maybe one or two other papers to have an actual staff in Iraq anymore. 
I mean, so that much of the news we get now is, is second and third hand because the economics of the newspaper industry is changing in a way that makes it very hard for newspapers to have foreign bureaus, very hard for them to do real investigative reporting and the like. And I think that's, a, that's more of a concern to me than just what's happened in, in, in this particular war, that to the extent that we rely on the press, uh, the economic model for the great newspapers of the 20th century is a model that I don't know can be sustained. Uh, and we certainly have already seen with network news that it's not sustained there. Uh, do you want to comment on, I mean, it's not, and it's not just that kind of journalism, it's any kind of enterprise journalism, investigative journalism in general. The, the, we're in tough times economically in the American uh, newspaper business these days. I, all of you know that. Uh, it's the result of the internet, which is a great uh, invention, uh, but we have yet to come up with a business plan uh, to figure out how to make money by putting our content, our news reports on the internet. Uh, and in, uh, so the future for newspapering is uncertain. I think we will figure it out because I think people want to have professional journalists who are careful, uh, who collect information, try to assemble it in a way that is understandable and accessible, who make decisions. Uh, yes, we do make judgments as journalists, uh, what we think is important, what may not be as important. Uh, I think there is a great hunger for that in the country, and in fact, a, a, a healthy democracy requires that kind of flow of information. But during this period, while we're struggling, um, a lot of newspapers have contracted. Uh, most foreign bureaus have been shut down. You're quite right about the coverage in Baghdad. There are now one or two papers, maybe three, that maintain Baghdad bureaus. I can tell you the cost of maintaining the New York Times Baghdad Bureau it runs uh, north of a uh, million dollars a year, maybe two million dollars a year because of the security people that we have to hire and the translators and so on. Not many news organizations can afford to make that investment and yet here we are spending uh, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars on the war uh, and our eyes and ears, if you will, uh, the American press uh, are, are very limited uh, in, in the battlefield at this point. So I'll just put in a little ad right now. Um, I think on November 12th at the Aurora Forum, also for free, uh, Anthony Shadid, the uh, Pulitzer Prize winning Iraq correspondent for the Washington Post will be here interviewed by Marjorie Miller, the foreign editor of the Los Angeles Times. So we're pretty lucky in this community actually to have these things going on on an ongoing basis, but you can ask some, some of those questions there too, I think. Um, you mentioned, this will be the last question I ask, um, you mentioned the internet and that's obviously had a huge impact not just on the, uh, on the financial uh, kind of model for the newspapers, but also on how news gets reported, disseminated. And in some ways, uh, in a case like this, it can either help, I suppose, uh, by um, a lot of information travels that way now, and, uh, but it also distorts things in, in cases. And do you think that can be, in terms of this national security issue and holding government accountable, is that, is that something that is still, is still not mature enough to do that? Well, I think the, the internet and blogging is a great thing. The danger with it is that we'll all be drowning in information and that a lot of what passes for information uh, is actually opinion uh, and not the 
facts uh, that undergird people's opinions. So I think the, the hard part for all of you uh, is figuring out how to um, absorb, digest, make sense of the tidal wave of information that is now out there. Uh, and I think we haven't yet hit a point where some big national security story, some big piece of classified information uh, has been obtained first by a blogger, but I'm sure that day is coming. Uh, and the difference may be that with institutions like the Times and the Post, there is some back and forth with the government. Uh, the proposal that Kelly, the lawyer, made that they hold publication for a day to give the Nixon administration a chance to assess the Pentagon Papers on the face of it was ludicrous at the time. The New York Times was already publishing the Pentagon Papers. That kind of cooling off period really didn't make sense. But I, I have to say, as someone who's been involved in these discussions, uh, it is important uh, when you do come upon something that is truly secret, before you publish it, and I'm not talking about something that's already appeared in the proceedings of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, uh, that you go and give the White House an opportunity to tell you why they think you shouldn't publish it. Now, in our case, uh, we usually end up publishing, sometimes not immediately, but uh, we do uh, err on the side of publishing. But I think the, the risk that you're identifying is there'll be bloggers out there, they'll come upon things that may truly be secrets that shouldn't be exposed, and they'll go out on the internet, and there's no stopping it. Any thoughts about that? Um, is there a mic out there somewhere? Uh, yes. Oh, back in the garden. Are there any questions uh, for Phil or Pam? Well, I have a couple of things. First, in regard to what Mr. Taubman just said about publishing, it took over a year before they decided to release the NSA wiretapping. But I wanted to take issue about the internet being the cause of the problems with newspapers. Business is the problem. We've lost a very good paper out here that was making a profit, but it wasn't making enough profit, so they sold it. Now, if newspapers are going to be for our needs, there, I, I know it's a dilemma, but we have to resolve, is it all going to be a business, or are we going to take care of what we need for the public information? Thank you. The, the business issue is a difficult one. The New York Times uh, profit margin uh, is 7% at the moment, which sounds pretty healthy, and I think would be for quite a few businesses. The profit margin expected of newspapers in this country and the big chains uh, is upwards of 20%, in some cases uh, higher than that. That's extremely difficult to produce these days. The way you produce it is you cut your staff uh, and you put out a lousy newspaper. Uh, so, you know, I don't know the answer to your question ultimately. We're going to be dependent, uh, I think, on people continuing to go to our website and other what I hope are quality websites. Uh, and that advertisers will make their way to those websites to provide the income uh, to sustain the newsrooms that we continue to operate. It's, uh, New York Times employs 1,200 people in its newsroom. 
correspondents, photographers, editors, graphic artists. Uh, the budget for the New York Times newsroom is in excess of $200 million a year. Uh, you know, we're not making that kind of money on the internet. I, I do think, just to pick up on two points uh, in, your, in your question, one is that you see this on the stage in this production that the Washington Post was going public at just the point at which the Pentagon Papers thing broke. And I think it's no accident that the two greatest papers in the country are both really still family controlled in that sense and therefore face perhaps less pressure than other newspapers. The other thing about the internet though is it's not just the news side, it's that for a lot of small papers, the thing that brought them their profits was not their circulation, it was their classified ads. And the internet and Craigslist and stuff like that has gotten rid of a major source of profitability for newspapers. And so the question is whether they can get ad revenue essentially on the internet that will enable them to replace what was out there before. But I think as long as newspapers are a for-profit enterprise in a market that disciplines people on their profit margins, it's going to be very hard to expect the kind of news that we've become used to from newspapers. And so you do see this incredible consolidation out here where all of the papers in the East Bay basically have been consolidated into one not very good paper in a variety of ways, rather than having competitive newspapers. I mean, I think one of the things you did get a sense of from this place, at the national level, there's competition still among newspapers with resources behind them, but at the local level, there are very few places where there's any kind of competition anymore, and to the extent that competition drives innovation and drives uh, a kind of hunger to get the news, that's gone, and I don't know how we get that back. Yeah, I would just add that the there is nothing as invigorating as competition, and you know I've, I've lived and died by it in Washington over the years. Uh, ben Bradley's uh, competitive spirit uh, is was terrific, uh, and I think it was matched by the same competitive spirit at the New York Times. And today, those two institutions are still battling it out uh, to get the news in a very constructive and healthy way, not in a kind of destructive. Uh, you know, effort to jam anything into the newspaper and create a tabloid kind of journalism. But that's missing in most communities around the country now, um, that kind of fierce competition. You made mention of the, uh, the responsibilities of the newspapers and the American public for seeing what's going on. And we have about 14 months or so left of the current administration, and they seem to be on a, a PR campaign to promote the problems of Iran. What is the respective responsibility in these next 14 months of the public and the newspapers to investigate, confirm, or deny whatever nuclear buildup or other excuse they seem to be trying to establish? We're working very hard to try to do that. Uh, and I think partly in response to the failures prior to uh, the invasion of Iraq. The question of the Iranian threat, the Iranian role in Iraq, the Iranian nuclear program, all of those things are subject to the same kind of spin uh, that uh, existed in the build-up to the invasion of Iraq. And I think the major news organizations in the country, uh, having not done an adequate job uh, preceding the invasion of Iraq, are now determined uh, to do uh, a good job on examining, subjecting uh, to scrutiny uh, 
pursuing in every possible way the assertions that are made by the administration about Iran uh, and also to uh, track as best we can uh, preparations for military action. So I was uh, pleased, as I'm sure most everybody else here was, that uh, the Pentagon Papers were in fact published. But I thought the, um, uh, the play raised a, uh, an important issue, and that is of uh, who gets to decide whether a classified document uh, should be made public. And I, I must say, I find I'm rather uncomfortable with thinking that that is in the private hands, uh, even uh, the New York Times or the, or the Washington uh, Post. Uh, so I, wonder, I would be interested in your comments. Uh, it, it seems to me that uh, of, of what, what do you think is a, a legitimate mechanism for uh, deciding whether a given uh, set of documents uh, is, is legitimately classified or whether or not they should be made public? Well, one starting point for this is encouraging the same kind of self-reflection and self-criticism in the executive branch that I think uh, Phil was talking about with the press. Uh, and that is uh, not to have an impulse in favor of classifying everything and classifying it at the highest possible level. Because it's not just the Pentagon Papers. There's a huge amount of stuff that's classified that ultimately gets released where it's clear it was all in the public domain to begin with, uh, but somebody just stamps top secret on it, um, either because it's easier to do that than to look through the stuff carefully or the like. It would, be, it would be useful, I think, for Congress and the President to revisit the question of how classification is done uh, and, what the, and what the criteria ought to be, because as I say, a huge amount of stuff gets classified, not because it would be damaging to national security in the direct sense, but because it would be damaging to the reputation of the people uh, who are seeking to classify the documents. Um, there isn't a perfect answer to that question because on the one hand, you don't want to allow private parties to just decide what's secret and what's not. On the other hand, you also don't want just the government doing that because, as I say, the government's inclination to classify and keep things secret often involves things that aren't national security at all. And I'll just give one example of a quite notorious thing, which is the uh, secrecy of the entire Tuskegee syphilis experiments, which were experiments where the government essentially left uh, people who came to public health hospitals, African Americans in the South, uh, with untreated syphilis. Now we knew how to cure syphilis at that point. Government, would, they, for reasons that are kind of uh, incomprehensible to me, the doctors thought it would be interesting to see what happens to people with untreated cases of syphilis. And that stuff was essentially kept classified, not in national security terms, but in government secrecy terms, for 30 years while people died. Um, and the idea that the government is absolutely capable of making these decisions on its own seems to me a, a frightening one, um, given how often the government errs not on the side of uh, protection, but on the side of uh, covering the asses of people uh, in power. Yeah, I think you've hit the very critical fault line in our system of government. Um, you know, the press under the First Amendment uh, at the moment basically has the power, the authority, the latitude to make these decisions. Uh, the government is free to come at us, uh, 
they've not been very successful in trying to uh, impose prior restraint, but they, they have various uh, legal uh, weapons in their arsenal to come after us afterward. Uh, but the question then becomes, if, if it's awkward for a group of editors and reporters to decide whether something should be published or not, I think it's at least as awkward, if not more awkward, uh, to entrust the government entirely with that decision. And as someone uh, who worked for three and a half years in Moscow uh, in the mid-1980s, uh, I don't, you know, I know, and I'm sure most of you are, don't need to be reminded of what life is like in a society where the government does have absolute power in all of these matters, uh, and the press is a, a rubber stamp, uh, a puppet for the government. So when Bill Keller and Jill Abramson and I and Arthur Sulzberger Jr., the publisher, sat down to discuss figure out what to do with the information we had on the NSA eavesdropping case. We gave the government a lot of opportunity to explain its concerns to us. We waited on the story because we felt that some of the government concerns were uh, valid. We felt we needed more reporting uh, before we understood the full dimensions of the eavesdropping program. We came over time to understand there had been a very uh, hot debate in the government about the program, something we didn't know when the f story first uh, drove up. Eventually, uh, we published it. It uh, infuriated the Bush administration. But I'd sure rather live in a society where that kind of story ultimately gets published than in one in which the press is powerless to make that kind of information public. Um, there was one line in the play that just really struck me as a two-edged sword, which is, um, I believe it's, now we just assume that they're lying. And um, that is probably true from experience, a really good way of doing it, but it, it can totally undermine the ability of government to actually do good things. And I'm just wondering, you know, at what point does this, um, do you just end up disregarding anything that the government says as, you know, they're obviously lying? Because I, I feel that a lot of the time now, but it, it really worries me as a member of a democracy that, you know, I have to treat my government that way. Well, I think it, it is, um, it's kind of a cancer in our society when you reach the point where you, you don't trust the government. I'd give you my own very personal take on this. I haven't entirely given up on the government. Um, you know, I, I take each case as it comes uh, and try to evaluate what the government is telling me. I don't presume from the start that whatever they're telling me is false. I, I feel as a journalist, my obligation, my professional duty is to subject it to a lot of uh, further reporting to try to better understand whether the government is lying to me or is partially lying to me or is not lying at all. Uh, I, I think it would be incredibly corrosive to our society if we the starting point for all discussions in journalism was that any government entity, whether it's the presidency or the county commission in Santa Clara County, uh, is lying to you. Uh, but I do think you have to subject what they tell you to a lot of 
uh, intensive reporting to determine what exactly is going on. I don't think the government is lying all of the time or even most of the time. Some people in the government are incapable ever of telling the truth and some people are lying on particular occasions. But I think even today, if you look across the kind of broad swath of the national government or the state government, you hear a lot of truth. Um, and so I, I don't think I'm particularly cynical about the government. I think there are some areas in which both in the Pentagon Papers case and today, where I no longer believe what particular government officials say because they've shown themselves repeatedly not to be telling the truth. But um, I think almost in a way the fact that people tend to be credulous is a sign that most people have not lost faith in government. They're, they're constantly being slapped in the face by the government and they, you know, and they move on to other issues. And so I think the, the role of the press in part is to point out to people where the statements aren't true. Um, and that's also the point of having a government of checks and balances beyond the press. That is, um, if we wanted to talk about an, a, 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 you know, an entity that failed perhaps more in, the re in recent years than the presidency or the press, in some ways it's Congress, um, which has uh, ways of getting at the truth that exceed even the press's ways of getting at the truth if they were interested in finding out uh, what the truth is, but oftentimes they too are uh, interested in something else. So one last question up front. How do you see the future of the practice of uh, reclassifying uh, documents that have been declassified already, uh, which is exactly what we did subsequent to uh, what took place in Russia after the end of the Soviet Union? There was a recent case, I don't remember the particulars, one of my colleagues, Scott Shane, wrote about it. Uh, it's in a, it strikes me as theater of the absurd when you get to the point uh, where something has been published, uh, whether by journalists or historians or scholars uh, or the participants in the events, uh, and then the government comes along and says, aha, that was classified uh, you know, in 1993 or 2001. It may have been published, but it's still classified, or we're now going to reclassify it. Uh, to me, that is, a, a, as I say, a kind of surreal approach to governance uh, that just seems to defy common sense. I mean, that's one of the things I think also that modern technology changes in ways. You really cannot put the toothpaste back in the tube now because so many people will have access to the document. It will have been scanned in various ways, and it can be put up on the Internet. So the idea that reclassification will now work, uh, if it ever was true, is, le is less, less true today than at any point in the past. just want to say one last thing, which is, um, my first job as a lawyer over the summer, between my first and second years of law school, was to work at the Washington Post in the counsel's office. And uh, one day we were getting something out of the vault, and uh, my boss took me in and said, these are our Pentagon papers. I mean, I'd never actually thought there were real papers there. Um, and it, it was amazing how much, how much ferment and how much knowledge came out of what turns out to be a very small box. I mean, it really would have fit on the seat next to Ben Bedikian uh, on an airplane. Uh, I, I will wind up with one little footnote to the Pentagon Papers, uh, which I don't think has ever found its way uh, into the public domain. Uh, I worked for Time Magazine when I graduated from Stanford. I was in the Boston Bureau. 
And one day, the senior editors of Time uh, came up to Boston, uh, as they would do periodically, to dine with the scholars at Harvard or MIT or other universities up there. And they went out to dinner with a group of people, including Daniel Ellsberg. This is before the Pentagon Papers was published. And uh, he offered them the Pentagon Papers. They didn't either didn't understand what he was offering, or they understood it and didn't want the burden of dealing with it. Uh, so the cup was passed to the New York Times. Back so we're very lucky to end with two very personal stories about the, about the Pentagon Papers. So thanks to all of you and for your good questions and to Philip Tobin and Pam Carlin. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.